podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, welcome back to the podcast. We've got a few more weeks of ideally hyper productivity here before a lot of us are just going to shut down and take it easy over the holidays. Of course, we'll continue to have episodes every Thursday morning throughout the year. And I got to say, Bossman and I are very optimistic, as I know a lot of us are, about 2021. In some ways, even though it's been an incredibly tough year, it's been kind of an all time year for online businesses remote businesses, and especially e-commerce, which we're going to talk about today. Regular listeners will know that Ian and myself had an e-commerce business for over a decade, selling valet podiums and other types of industrial furniture, which we sold back in 2015. Certainly, it's something we've both kept a keen interest in, especially in the way it's evolved with systems like Amazon FBA and Shopify and more automated 3PLs and things like that. And of course, it goes without saying that Many working in e-commerce, the folks that listen to this pod, have had their best year ever in part due to COVID. But of course, e-commerce doesn't just offer an opportunity for entrepreneurs to create and sell products and merchandise, but to build services and products that aid in the sales of that merchandise as well. And as we've mentioned before on this podcast, one of the best ways to do that is to scratch your own itch, which is something today's guest has done extremely successfully. We were selling these uniforms and we were in New York and New York was our number one market, but California was our second largest market. And we felt the need to compete with Amazon on two-day delivery. So we would send by plane, you know, UPS, second day air, lots of product to California. And I noticed that I was spending more on my UPS bill than I was taking home every year. And that like just infuriated me. <laughs> So today you're going to hear about how that one pain point shipping cost inspired what is now a large and successful business. I really enjoyed today's conversation, especially the frank and humble way today's guest told his story, both the ups and downs. I hired my own accountant, spoke to a few people. No one could figure it out. It was basically the accountant told me like, you can hire a forensic accountant to figure out what happened to the money, but what's the point, right? It's gone. That is Aaron Rubin, founder and CEO of ShipHero, a remotely run company providing SaaS or software as a service management systems to mid to large size e-commerce companies. In addition, they also have a number of US-based fulfillment warehouses, which handle stock for e-commerce businesses and dispatch it directly to customers. Typically, their clients are businesses turning over anywhere from 5 million to half a billion in annual revenue. And if that isn't enough, hang around to the end. If you're interested in Aaron's, I would say, somewhat insider's take on where e-commerce is headed based on what he's seen from somewhat of a panopticon view of the industry. So let's get into it. Like so many of the best stories, I asked Aaron to start at the beginning. So we have about 200 employees. 
We started in 2013. Me and a co-founder named Nicholas, you know, nights and weekends, you know, in his backyard, he'd, you know, grill and we'd have a beer and I would try to write code and it would be a disaster. <laughs> we mostly bootstrapped it. We raised $435,000 from friends and family, but no VC. What do you use that money for? I mean, we could have used more. Like, we were always at $0 in the bank, basically. SaaS is tough. I was, you know, I listened to your podcast with Jordan Gall the other day, and he was saying the same thing, which is cash flow in the beginning is just god awful. You're building this product, you're doing all this work to sign a customer, and then you get like one month's payment, right? Like, and the next month you get one, it's like a drip, right? <laughs> and you never have any money in the bank up till we were like $5 million in revenue. Then it sort of started to be a little more comfortable. Until then, you're always broke. So just took the money so that like have a little bit of a cushion, sleep a little better at night. This is so weird to see you like sitting in a home office talking about these big numbers with 200 employees. Does it feel surreal to be the CEO of such a company that is completely remote? No, it's just been one step at a time. You know, so every year we get a little bit bigger. So it doesn't feel like, you know, life-changing. Two things we noticed this week, uh, one of my guys was running some numbers and just looking at like the Black Friday, Cyber Monday, like volume, a lot of people out publish their numbers so we could compare our numbers. And it looks like in the U.S. alone, we serve some people outside the U.S., but just in the U.S. market, more than one out of every 200 e-commerce packages that get delivered are shipped through us. That blew my mind. Then you start thinking of like every truck, like every one of those 200 boxes on that UPS truck came through us. Like that's insane. That's fantastic. Let's just re- like turn back the clock a little bit and sort of work our way up to the state of e-commerce and your business and everything. One thing that jumped out about your story is that you dropped out of university. Can you bring me back to that moment? That seems like a pretty incredible decision to make. I was making money online doing like, so I'm 41. So this is like in the, the mid to late 90s. I was making money online, like doing banner ads. And then a family friend wanted to start this online martial arts apparel company, selling karate uniforms. He was a big karate guy. Like he knew the industry and he was going to deal with like all this, like the business end that I was going to deal with the marketing and the technical end, which I knew. I, I was very comfortable with that. I think it was the summer of freshman year. Where were you in university? What part of the world and everything? I was in New Jersey, Stevens Institute of Technology, which is, was known at the time to be like the third most difficult engineering university program to graduate out of. So we started it. It went really well. I was making you know, more than I was going to make if I graduated and got a real job. So I was like, what am I doing this for? I just dropped out. I was officially went on leave. I said, you know, I can take off for a year and see if I want to come back. But then the business was doing well and I just never went back. What was it about the, you know, karate apparel? It seems like such a niche thing. I can get into that. So we weren't actually as successful as we thought we were. <laughs> but we were early and we were the number one, you know, retailer of this tiny little industry. And, you know, that was enough to make a nice living off of. You mentioned recently that those were really bleak years for you. And I'm curious, like, it sounds like awesome. You're making tons of money. 
you found like a career for yourself, what was so bleak about that time? So there's a few things that happened. I mean, I had personal issues that were difficult. But from a business perspective, I made like tons of mistakes, right? So first mistake was like me and my co-founder were 50-50 partners, but he made more money than me, which I let happen and was a mistake. Through that, we grew it really quickly. We grew it from zero to $6 million in revenue, no outside money or anything. We started with 2500 bucks. Grew great. Right before the financial crisis was like our best year ever, like 2007. And then financial crisis hit. People stopped sending their kids to karate. That was really where we made our money, right? It was like moms sending their kids to karate and they buy the uniforms from us because it was cheaper than buying it from the school. That was our business, basically. So that stopped. People stopped sending their kids to karate and taekwondo. Our business started to drop. My co-founder said, like, we have, like, a cash flow issue. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, we're making all this money. How do we have a cash flow issue? Like, I wanted to see the financials. He wasn't, like, really open with it. And then he came back to me and he was like, you know, I misunderstood. Like, everything's fine. I was like, oh, cool. Awesome. I don't have to worry about this anymore. My mom at the time was, was sick. Probably the worst day of my life was my mom was in the hospital. And, you know, like me and my father, two of my brothers, we were just like with her like 24 hours a day. We were rotating. And she never got out of the hospital that time. She had been in and out for years. I was in a daze. Like my co-founder called me and said, we got to discuss financials. Can you meet me at the accountant's office? I never met the accountant. It was a personal friend of my co-founder. Another mistake. So he said, meet, us, meet me there. I met there and I don't remember much of the conversation, but the gist of it was like, you thought you made all this money, you paid taxes on all this money, you made less than you thought, there was all this debt that wasn't on the books. So really you owed all this money and all the profits that you thought really were, you were living off debt. And I don't remember leaving, I don't remember the rest of the day, but it was clear that the business was, was basically dead. It was pretty awful. So... I hired my own accountant, spoke to a few people. No one could figure it out. It was basically the accountant told me, like, you can hire a forensic accountant to figure out what happened to the money, but what's the point, right? It's gone. So we didn't do that. We just moved on. And then eventually I went to my co-founder and I said, just take the business. And I don't want the debt, though. You can have all the assets, keep all the debt, and let me walk away. And he said, no. I was going to end up having to go bankrupt if I stayed. So what I told him was, I'll take the business and I'll take all the debt. And the reason I was able to do that, I went to my dad, something I never wanted to do. My father's a college professor, he didn't have a lot of money, but he owned his house and he mortgaged his house and lent me $350,000 from that mortgage. And I plowed that into paying off the debts. We were still super negative. We were still like technically insolvent. Like we still owed a lot more than the assets, even with the 350. But I thought I could save it. So I did that, borrowed the 350 grand from my dad, which really sucked. And put a lot of pressure because now I had to make it succeed. And then, you know, slowly rebuilt it back over many years, sort of digging out of that hole, working my ass off to to get the business back onto a real, real footing. That's incredible. I mean, two things that jump out, it sounds like, that your family didn't think you were crazy. You were so young and you know you had a promising career path and your your father obviously had a promising career and you were doing something completely curveball from all that. Yeah. 
I don't know. I had other issues with my family at that time. Like I, I grew up like Orthodox Jewish and I'm not. So that was sort of a big, a big uh, break. When I was doing that, I wasn't actually in contact with really my family at all. I was just living alone. So they didn't have much of a say in me, in me going that path. And then later, as my mom got sick, we, we sort of reconnected. But definitely different. Like I, I have a good relationship with my family now. By the time, it was, it was super difficult. Um, it wasn't what my family wanted for me. There seems like a lot of mystery around your first business partner and the management of cash within that company. Looking back on it, are you able to draw some lessons about how things went down and how you were able to have such high sales figures yet be in so much debt? The lessons was definitely like I keep an eye on the numbers myself. Like I don't outsource that to anyone. That was the biggest lesson I learned from that. How that happened, what it's hard to know. Like I don't know where the money went. Like was our margins just less? I never understood it. We did rebuild the business. And it became much more profitable even than we thought it had been. So clearly the money was there to be made. I don't know what went wrong the first iteration. What happened with your relationship with your first business partner? I took it over. I paid him back for everything. And we didn't really stay in touch much after that. Fill us in on those like sort of intermediate years you're getting back on your feet. What was it like when you were able to pay back your father, for example? That was fantastic. So what happened was, you know, we rebuilt it really slowly. We had outsourced to a third party and that third party ended up going bankrupt, which sucked too, which was another mistake we made. We were just desperate to find a partner. When you said outsource, what did you outsource? Well, we sent all our products to them. So they were like a third party logistics company plus some other stuff. So the idea was we'll just do like the sales and marketing and website and all that stuff and let them handle the operations. They did the same thing actually with another company called Everlast, which is a, a large boxing company. So they did that with us and them, and then they went bankrupt mid-contract with both of us, which wasn't fun. But anyways, we slowly built it back. We pivoted to a martial art called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, created a really nice website. It's called bjjhq.com, which is a flash sales site. One deal a day. It's really popular in the industry. We created our own brand called 93 Brand, also really popular in the industry. Yeah, it was a really good e-commerce business. Like we rebuilt it. It was larger than ever. Top line was like 7 million, I think in our best year. We had a bunch of million dollar plus profit years. And then what happened was when it was sort of like making like 250K a year, it was like a great business in terms of like being able to live, but I couldn't do anything else. Like it wasn't enough to like reinvest in something new or anything like that, right? It was enough to like live my life. Once I got a bit above that. Because you live in New York too. So, you know, you need a little bit more to live your life and you have kids. Yeah. I always wanted to do something bigger. And my background was writing computer code and I was spending most of my time, you know, doing marketing and apparel stuff. And like I did it. And it was great to pay my bills, but it wasn't like what I really was like good at. And I always thought I could do something bigger, run a larger company, but we weren't going to get bigger in our industry because like in our industry, we were pretty big already. So there wasn't a lot of room to grow. That's so interesting because I think if you know someone come to you at that time, you get this great apparel line for a huge growing sport. Why not just double down and you know try to become a household brand name? I didn't think that was realistic to get outside of our sport. A lot of people had tried to like move outside of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and do become more of like a lifestyle brand. 
We actually, as our flash sale site, we would buy this company called Form Athletics that sponsored this guy, John Jones, who's UFC legend. And they went bankrupt and we literally had trailers of their product on the entire warehouse. It's just trailer after trailer. And we bought tons of these guys out of bankruptcy. Or not, we didn't buy the companies. We would just take the liquidations and sell them. And we had a very low risk business, right? Like we knew what we could make. We knew we could sell it. We didn't get stuck with stock. And like to go from that to sort of like, hey, let's try to build the next, you know, huge lifestyle brand. I didn't think our odds were good of, of actually succeeding. So tell me about then the first spark of inspiration for what would become Ship Hero. The real spark of it was we were selling these uniforms and we were in New York and New York was our number one market, but California was our second largest market. And we felt the need to compete with Amazon on two-day delivery. So we would send by plane, you know, UPS, second day air, lots of product to California. And I noticed that I was spending more on my UPS bill than I was taking home every year. And that like just infuriated me, right? I just wanted that bill to be lower. (laughs) That was basically like, all right, how do we get it so that instead of the product shipping just from my New York warehouse, I can like ship it from closer. Like if I shipped it from Nevada to California, it would have cost me like $8. But I was shipping it from New York. It was costing me $20 and I wanted to save that 12 bucks on each package. And I've been working towards that for the last seven years. Why wasn't it possible? I would have had to open a second warehouse and we were too small. You know, we were barely large enough to have one. So I need to somehow get it to work. And at the time, were there any people offering what we now know as like these sort of agile 3PL solutions? You know, my first experience with 3PL wasn't great. (laughs) (laughs) My second experience was actually very typical. We worked with a 3PL that still exists, still fairly well known in Nevada. And they did a fantastic job in the beginning. And then we committed, okay, we're going to go and we're going to work with you guys. And we sent them a lot of product and they were a disaster. They were just slow because basically the way most of these 3PLs worked, especially then, was they worked their ass off to get you in as a customer. Once they had your product, it's really hard to leave. So you became second fiddle, right? And like I really took a lot of pride in our logistics. Like That's something, obviously, as you can probably tell from the business I started, I care about. And to see these guys like not really giving a shit about our, our products and, and making sure they shipped on time it just wasn't something I was, I was going to live with. So I pulled my product out of their warehouse, which I think shocked them. So I decided I have to do something. Can I interrupt? Just, can you describe some of the frustrations you experienced? They wouldn't receive the product on time and they wouldn't ship it on time. The biggest problem was actually receiving the product. So we send them, you know, we get a truck in from our factory in Pakistan and it's, you know, a 40 foot container and those things you see all the time packed to the gills. There's 600 boxes in there. Every item has to be taken out, put away on shelves before it can be shipped. And that takes work. And they would rather, you know, do other work than do that. It just wasn't a priority for them. Nope. Can't do it next week. Nope. Can't do it the week after. They just, they haven't unpacked the truck. I feel like I have to give a little image for a lot of our listeners. I've done a lot of warehouse time myself and used to do a lot of this work. And you can imagine with a 40-foot container coming from Pakistan, there's no pallets in that container. They are literally packing it to the gills with cardboard boxes. And you could imagine the labor intensiveness of pulling all the boxes out, opening up, 
dividing up the SKUs, putting them on the right shelves. This is a big project to unload simply one container. And it's a blue collar business though. If you don't want to do the work of unloading trucks and packing boxes, you shouldn't be in the 3PL business, right? <laughs> and a lot of people are in there because their sales are marketing focused, right? And they're not like blue collar operational focused. And that's how you end up with that sort of poor experience that I had. What'd you do? <laughs> Shipped it right back across to our warehouse in New York. So we still had the warehouse in New York. And it cost a fortune to do that. Right. Your unit cost on like every single item in that truck is just going through the roof. It was more than one, right? Because by the time we had made the decision to pull the product out, like stuff's on the water, it's going to the port of LA, it's not going to the port of New York. It's months from when you order a product till you actually get it. So it was disruptive, definitely more than a hundred grand in direct costs to us to pull the product out, which is why they thought we wouldn't. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at Service Provider Pro or SPP, an agency dashboard for productized services. What could be more relevant for the audience of this episode? Look, if you want to sell services at any sort of scale, you need a system, all the way from signing up clients to project delivery. SPP gives you that system in a white-labeled client-facing portal for your agency. If you receive client inquiries about how their projects are going with Service Provider Pro, they can just log in and see all their orders, download their invoices, and manage their billing all in one place. It's the central source of truth for your team about the progress of your client work. They can see everything that's due, collaborate on orders, and send reports. It's all streamlined for selling and delivering services at scale, which I know we are all aiming to do. So let's scale it up. Many agencies have abandoned their expensive and clunky custom-built dashboards in favor of SPP and have grown past a million dollars in revenue with the help of this software. So do check out the platform over at spp.co. That's spp.co to learn more and see how it works. And a big shout out to the folks at SPP for sponsoring the TMBA pod and for being so amazing to work with. What was then that first feature of Ship Hero? Were you thinking like, well, I'm just going to do what they do, but I'm going to care more? The idea was we're going to build the software. You can run it in your warehouse, and then you can have other people run it in their warehouses for you. That was sort of the approach. So we still needed to build software that will run a warehouse really well. We used that in our warehouse in New York. And then actually the first warehouse was a friend of mine named Surab who owns a company called Wine Chateau, which is still a customer of ours. and they ship wine. They're in New Jersey. They have a bunch of stores in a warehouse and they needed something to run in their warehouse to ship to their customers. So we sort of were the first two and that was just like, hey, we need to run a, a really good warehouse. Like that's where it all starts. And we thought that would be easy. It turned out to be, to be pretty hard. But building good warehousing software has to be the basis. And then after that, it's like, okay, how do we start shipping from lots of different places? It seems to me like at the time, there was plenty of different pieces of software that ran warehouses. What vision did you have that was different than what was you know, available in the market at the time? The most noticeable bit was we used iPads and iPod Touches so that you could be walking around versus uh, paper-based systems. And there was also these handouts, which were like Motorola or Windows CE devices that, that some large warehouses used. 
uh, which we had used actually in-house as well. They're super clunky and hard to use. And just like having an iPhone and being like, I I can do so much more on my iPhone. Why isn't everyone using iPhones in their warehouse, basically? And it stayed that way. We still only use iOS devices, so iPads primarily these days. No Android devices. And yeah, and there's, I don't know, thousands and thousands of people right now using iPads to pick orders using our software. So at the time, how many folks did you have in your New York warehouse? At our peak, we probably had like 20 people in the warehouse. One thing we had found was when we implemented it, our number one employee in terms of productivity was doing twice as much as our worst employee in terms of productivity. (laughs) And he was getting paid $2 an hour more. That was another bonus that we had. It was like we actually were able to see who was doing what and who was making the mistakes. And we actually were able to reduce the workforce a lot and still get out the same amount of orders with two things. A, it's just like more efficient software, but B, like once you could hold people accountable and really understand who are your good employees and who are your people that are, you know, basically take naps half the day, which happens. Having that ability to see who does what allowed us to really reduce the warehouse staff a lot. How did the staff react to you putting the software into the warehouse? The good pickers loved it because they were more efficient and we were able to see it, right? So they got more kudos because we could actually see, hey man, you're doing a great job. The people that were not great at their job, they knew they weren't great at their job. So they they didn't really appreciate it. So at the time, are you like the CEO of this business, but like coding in the middle of the night, building warehouse software or how, how did you organize the workflow? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was just nights and weekends. I would work my day job, which was, you know, pretty easy at that point. Like we'd been established for many years. Like we had a really good team. So like it wasn't that hard. Yeah, nights and weekends would be writing code. It was easy in the beginning. When it got hard was when we had real customers. And then customers expect customer support. I was doing the customer support. We we didn't have any money. We didn't have any people. So it was just like me doing like get a bug fix the bug, release the bug, tell the customer it's fixed, you know, like doing everything, right? That was tough because it was more time sensitive. I couldn't, you couldn't do the customer support at night. And then also, you know, potential customers want to do a demo, right? And it's like, they want to do a demo and they want to do a demo, not, you know, (laughs) Friday night at 8 p.m. So, (laughs) so I had to work around their schedule, but owning my own business is a lot easier than if I had worked for someone else to try to make that scheduling work. Do you remember the first customer you sold the software to? My friend Sora at Wine Chateau. I don't even know if we would have started it before, if not for him, because he had seen how our warehouse ran. And he was like, man, I want to use the software. Like, just get it for me. So he was like really, really big advocate. So he was our first one. Our first customer I didn't know was a company called Swim to Win, which was a great customer. They actually introduced us to Google and some of the Google Venture Capitalist, which I screwed that meeting up horribly. Never got another one. <laughs> how do you screw it up? I just didn't know how to talk the talk. You know what I mean? Like I was getting way too in the, the weeds of like the technology we were building. And they wanted me to pitch on like how we're going to, you know, change the world and, and make a trillion dollars. So, <laughs> so yeah, I screwed that up. Let's just establish a timeline here. So you put the software into your warehouse in the 2015 timeframe. Is that about right? So we started on it in 2013. We probably started to actually use it somewhere in 2014. And then when did that first customer that you didn't know actually take up the software? Probably 2015. 
did you just pull pricing out of your ass? Like what was the pricing philosophy yep. at that point? Just straight out of the ass. Just yeah, yeah. What is the pricing philosophy nowadays? How do you scale your pricing per user, for example? Yeah, so now it's basically $2,000 to get started, which includes a few users, and then $150 a month for each additional user. It's pretty straightforward. Who was your co-founder? Why did you take on a co-founder? My co-founder is a guy named Nicholas, Nicholas Daniel Richards. He's a great guy. We were friends. We'd actually done some consulting work for us. And then we'd been friendly, like we'd go out to dinner every once in a while. And like, I had the idea for Ship Hero. And I really wanted him to do it with me. So I pitched him on it. We launched it together. We had some issues in the beginning as well. We started as 50-50 partners. And he basically left his job. And I was trying to you know, spend as much time as I could on it. I was providing all the money, the little amount that we needed. After, I don't know how many months, a few months, maybe three months, we still were really far from like where we needed to be. You know, It became obvious. The more we did, the more we have to do. So he went and got another job. So really he became just like, you know, only available, you know, a few hours a week, you know, maybe 10, 20 hours a week versus I was at that point, like really focused on it. So I was probably spending 40 plus hours a week on it and putting all the money, which became frustrating to me. So what we ended up doing is he left, gave back most of his equity, kept some of it. And then... I struggled if I should stay or not because like, oh, I only was going to start it with this guy and then he quit. And now it's like, it's going to be harder than we thought. And like, you know, my, even my co-founder doesn't think this is a good idea. Should I really keep going? But yeah, I really believed in it. So I stuck with it. And then he ended up working at the um, NBA Players Association as CTO. And then once we had built the company up over a few years and we had some real revenue and we could afford to pay him a salary... Less than he was making at the MBPA, but you know, a reasonable livable salary. He came back and got some of his equity back and um, has been with us for the last few years. You started with this the idea that you wanted to do something bigger. And in the early days, your nights and weekends, you can't keep your business partner around. Did you ever lose kind of faith that it was actually going to be something bigger? Or when was the first early returns that you were like, maybe this is going to be something? The times I really thought about quitting were like when we had a few sizable customers, some of them who were jerks or one of them was a real jerk, I guess. And, you know, we'd be getting yelled at, not necessarily stuff that was our fault, some stuff that was our fault. And I felt all alone. I was like, like it was just me. Like, I got to go get yelled at by this dude and then <laughs> try to fix his problems. I remember once he's like, you know, you guys are living off me and that was like our lowest year. I, I pumped a half, like more than half a million dollars into the company that year, which was basically like all the money I had saved. And he was charging the guy like, I don't know, 500 bucks a month or something, right? And he was like tearing into me of like, you know, hey, you're taking my 500 bucks a month and like, I'm spending so much more than this on my own money to try to make this product work for you. My co-founder wasn't there. So it was just me taking, you know, I felt like the responsibility was on me. And I did think about quitting at that point of like, it wasn't like I thought the company couldn't make it. I was just like, I don't want to deal with this. Like I have this other business. I can make a million bucks a year instead of having this dickhead screaming at me all day. <laughs> then actually we ended up firing the customer because there was one guy working for me who had called him to try to solve something from his cell phone. And then the guy had his cell phone number and he called 
my employee back and like ripped into my employee. And then I called him back. I was like, you know, you've been doing that to me and like, whatever, like I, I took it, but like, you can't do that to my employee. So you got to find some other software. It was mostly fine after that, but that was a low point where I really thought like, man, should I just, just hang it up, just close shop. Was there like a month or a week or a day when you can recognize that you did something that really changed the trajectory and started getting you traction in terms of acquiring new customers and, you know, gave you some sense of optimism for the future of Ship Hero? This company called Universal Music Group, they do like every big artist from the, the Beatles to Lady Gaga. They had approached us and said, like they were building this whole customized solution and it wasn't quite ready. So they wanted to use Shopify and us as a short-term bridge. They said it would be six to 12 months. And we said, sure, that's great. It's a great name for us, right? It'll give us great credibility. So we did it. And we didn't invest too much in like doing too much stuff for them because we figured it's a short-term customer. So like they're just going to get the base product and hopefully it'll work for them, you know, good enough to get them through, you know, till their other software. And then at one point they, you know, they wanted to do another conversation. And the conversation was like, we've spent a million dollars on this other solution. The roadmap for where the solution is going to end up is worse than the current offering that Shopify and ShipHero have. We want to know, like, would you guys commit to, like, turning this into, like, a permanent thing? Which I should have said, yes, but give us more money. I did. <laughs> I should have renegotiated the deal because we had, like, a really heavily discounted deal because we thought it was just a short-term throwaway. But, yeah, at that point, that was pretty eye-opening to me of, like, I mean, that's a legit company doing legit scale. And they were saying that, like, they liked our product that much. So... For me, that was, that was probably the high point in terms of like, okay, this is going to work. And what year was that? 2017. Let's then fast forward to sort of like pre-COVID end of 2019 ballpark about how many customers or implementations we're looking at. You said end of 2019? Yeah. Pre-COVID. So we were probably doing around 5 million in revenue, probably maybe 250, 300 customers. You're cruising along assuming you're profitable at that point, why the move towards warehouses at that point? So just for the audience, you guys have got solidly into the warehouse game. You've bought your own warehouses that are separate from your apparel business. Yeah, so we have our own warehouses. We're finding fulfillment for lots of people. Adams, Dress Barn, Radio Shack, a bunch of other people. Like going back to the original idea, we always wanted to have this multi-warehouse approach, right? Shift from closer to the end customer. It was always where we wanted to go, but we never wanted to have warehouses, right? So we tried a million different things to try to solve the problem of getting the product into lots of warehouses. So it was shorter ship time and without having to own our own warehouses. And every single one failed. The last one we brought in, this woman named Maggie, who's now our COO. We hired her to run this, the approach we tried before. We started our own warehouses, and she came to me after a few months. She's like, I can keep taking your money and collecting a paycheck. It's never going to work. And I was like, all right, fine. I'll finally hear the truth. Like, it's never going to work. And basically what she said was like, if we do it ourselves, like maybe we could do it. If we do our own warehouse. What was it that she identified that was not feasible about the vision to use other people's warehouses? Well, I mean, one thing that 
became really obvious is we, we basically would go to people and we tell them like, if you use all these warehouses, you're going to save a lot of money, right? You can save $2 a package if your products are in all these warehouses because you're going to ship from closer to the end customer, right? The initial problem I had was shipping the uniforms across the country. And everyone would say, that's fantastic. It's a great idea. I love it. And they wouldn't do it because people are busy and they have other things to do. And they've got their businesses and they're focused on sales and marketing and they're focused on product development and saving a dollar or two on a package when it's going to make their life more complicated and they have to start thinking about things that they're not comfortable with. They're not logistics people. They just don't want to do it. So what we basically said is, we'll put our money where our mouth is, right? We're saying there's all this money to be saved. We'll just make it super easy for the end customer. So the merchant just sends the product to one of our warehouses. We'll spread it around. We'll do all the work. We'll keep that $1 to $2 package for ourselves. And how's it working? It's working great. It's been insanely fast growing, like way faster than any of the other businesses I've ever been a part of. Yeah, it's been huge. I mean, people love the idea. Is it because of COVID? Is that part of it? It's hard to know because we were just ramping. I mean, like every month was like a huge growth rate, pre-COVID and post-COVID. But pre-COVID, the numbers were pretty small because we had just started. So it's really hard to know what would have happened without COVID. Yeah, so I don't really know. Basically, a rocket ship from like once we sort of got it out there till today. So the value prop is you're calling up a client like Dress Barn. And instead of saying, hey, implement my software into your warehouse or... You know, it's going to make you more efficient. You're saying, guys, just ship all your inventory direct to Shapiro's facility and we'll take care of it for you, essentially. Send us your picking orders. Exactly. We do it all ourselves. So we just, we use our own software to do it. So it's the exact same software. Everything is the same. We just use our own software instead of you doing your own warehouses. We do it for you. It's almost like you're allowing individual brands to operate like Amazon. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah. I mean, we always say that, like, if you want to see what we've done and what we're going to do, just look at everything that Amazon's done and we'll do in their logistics, right? So Amazon's 50% or at this point, you know, 45% of all the e-commerce logistics in the US. We're trying to provide that same capabilities to the other half. It's interesting. You're seeing like front hand this revolution of like a company like Dress Barn is there's like 30 people at that company, but they're operating at these enormous revenue figures. Yeah, what they've been able to do is really cool. But yeah, we have a lot of customers who got a customer, Adams, that does like shoes and masks. Yeah, Dress Barn, like they were bought out of bankruptcy. So they went from zero to like 100 million in like, or just shy of 100 million in like a year with us. So like January 1st was their first order. Shipped from our warehouse, the first sale shipped from our warehouse. They grew that with us, you know, to that almost hundred million dollar point without ever having a warehouse, ever having to touch the product, right? Everything everything went through us. And we've had other guys who've gone from not quite as dramatic, but you know, from two to thirty million, we've had a couple do over the last year. So a lot of that's COVID related. Some of that growth is COVID related, where a dress bar probably would have done better actually without COVID, because they sell to apparel did better before COVID. But we had some other companies that, that had like um, masks like Adams and they just saw the, this tremendous growth and in your own warehouse, it's really tough because like, are you going to build new buildings and sign five-year leases because you had a surge of masks and, you know, that's probably going to go away hopefully, you know, next year. 
or do you not build that additional capacity? And then like, how do you actually ship the orders, right? So it's sort of really tough to build out those warehouses when you have uncertain demand. So they just outsourced it to us and like, that's our problem, not theirs. We have a ton of, you know, e-commerce entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. I'm curious if, it's a tough question, but are there trends that you're seeing sitting in the heart of all of it that might benefit them hearing from you? Obviously, e-commerce overall has been booming. A little bit of a, a shift, so less apparel, although apparel is still huge. Like women's apparel is still our number one market. Tons of supplements. Supplement businesses gone through the roof. Supplements for gamers through like, we have prenatal vitamin companies. Like, so like the whole range of anything to do with like health-related stuff has been really big. Obviously, the mass business has been really big. Footwear has been one of the few businesses that have been down. Interesting. People aren't buying fancy shoes when you're on Zoom all day. <laughs> Electronics has been great. Makeup's been down. So there's been some shifts in what's moving and what's not. But overall, like our the volume that we did this year, Black Friday to Cyber Monday, I think is up 130% from what we did last year. So, And I think Shopify reported... Theirs was up like 75% or something, like insane growth. We have a company, a customer called Solo Stove. They make, I'm like, you can't see people listening, but I'm like holding my head. They sell <laughs> these like outdoor like heaters, like fire pit stuff, I guess. They've been a customer for years, but their, their business has been absolutely bonkers this year, right? As people are stuck at home and you want to have somewhere warm to hang out with your friends and you know, fire pits have been huge. So like there's been a huge shift in, in what people are buying. But if you're in e-commerce, it's, you're in the right place right now. What's your vision for the future of Shapiro? It seems like you've achieved your nominal goal at, at the outset, which is to do something bigger that can provide you with a bigger sort of playground to play in. What are you thinking for the next five years? Yeah, I want to keep doing it. You know, like a lot of People think about like, hey, how much am I going to sell for? What's the value? Like, what's the exit? Like, so I love what I'm doing. I want to, I want to have a larger impact. So we want to get larger. We want to get bigger. Sort of what we're doing does require some scale with the warehouses. Like warehouses is not a good lifestyle business. Like e-commerce is a great lifestyle business. Warehouses is not because you get crushed by the big guys, right? So you need scale. So we're at a decent scale and we ship more than $5 billion a year dollars a year worth of goods. So we're not tiny by any means, but we're still small relative to the size of the industry. So we need to get bigger. I don't think you're going to see any like major change in terms of like, hey, what the company does or the product does. It'll look roughly the same in five years from now, just more of it. What's your edge personally? Like when you look back at your journey, it seems like entrepreneurship comes relatively naturally to you. You know, you've you've had these successes, you've achieved the growth you were seeking. How do you interpret that looking back on it? What separates you from folks who might struggle more to build successful businesses? Two related things was when things fail, which I've had plenty of other things that have failed, you know, even within Shapiro and just still like maintaining an optimism, right? So like you try something and it fails. It's like you got to jump into the next thing with just as much optimism, right? And if that one fails, you got to keep jumping into the next one, right? Because you got to understand that like, your odds of success, if your odds of success are 10% and you failed once, you can't be like, oh man, I failed. It's like, no, it's, you have only one 10% chance of winning. So it's cool. Just keep going. Like if you did 10 and failed, then get down on yourself, right? You got to be an optimist to be an entrepreneur because you're going to fail and you got to get back up. And the other one, man, is, is just not quitting. Like there were 
those days that I wanted to quit, like I could have quit and we wouldn't be here today, right? Like it would have been easy. I could have quit. I could have kept running my other business, made a nice living. Everything would have been fine and, and it would have been no story to tell, right? So I think just keeping going when, when I had reasons to quit was the reason why we got here. It's interesting talking to you, you know, like just this remarkable sitting on a video call and the kind of infrastructure that you've built out over the years and the team that you run. You know, a lot of folks that run businesses of this scale, they're much more braggadocious or blustery or talking vision. And it's remarkable to see like your relatively humble approach to all of it. I think it's hurt us in terms of like, we had tried to raise money in the past. Like I told you about that call with Google and like, I've done some other ones also where, yeah, like I have more of a blue collar conversation and like, it's not what people want to hear, right? They want to hear how you're going to change the world and you know, what the grand vision is. And I think, that, I think we're trying to do all those same things. It's just, we're also, you know, super cognizant of like, we got to ship all the boxes today, right? Like <laughs> if you don't do that, nothing else matters. So, but I think, you know, it definitely comes off wrong to like some VCs and some other people who expect that sort of, I don't sound or look like both in terms of my tone and also in terms of like what I say, what some of my peers do. But that's who we are. You mentioned blue collar many times in this interview. Is that something that's important to you? It's just the reality of the business. We have sort of philosophy around here. It's like we have no project managers, as an example. We do a lot of things a little bit different than other people. But we only hire people that do stuff, right? We don't hire any, you know, glue people, right? So, like, if you're not willing to write code or pick up a customer's phone call, if there's an Excel file that has to be analyzed, like if you're analyzing it, cool. If you sent it to someone else who's giving you a summary, you're not the right fit for our company, right? I'll do the spreadsheets myself. I, I fix tickets myself. You know, I write code myself. And it's just a philosophy, not that I'm good at it relative to the employees that we have. The employees are better at fixing the bugs than I have. But either you have a philosophy of like, if no one else is available, I'm going to do it. And if I need to understand something, the way I'm going to understand it is by doing it, right? And I've shipped tons of boxes and unloaded tons of trucks, right? And that's just our approach. And it's a slower approach, man, because it is slow to, you know, if you're going to ship thousands of orders to understand how shipping orders works, that means you're not doing something else, right? You're not out there raising money. You're not out there giving talks. You're not out there, you know, making yourself visible, right? It's a trade-off. But we have that blue-collar mentality, of how we're trying to build the business. That's cool. So final question. I appreciate your time. This is really fun for me. I love the business. This is a tough one, but it's like, there's a lot of people listening to this or on their walk or whatever, they're riding their bike around and they're thinking, man, I'd like to take a step towards doing something a little bit bigger myself. What's like a quality next step, something that could keep their optimism up. And what would you advise entrepreneurs that are trying to become an entrepreneur, trying to do a little bit more with their business? I mean, I think you have to be realistic in terms of what you can do in the time. So you've got to pick the right size business. If you have another job, you have part-time, like can't run an enterprise sales company because they're going to expect you to be available during regular business hours, right? Like you got you to gotta be realistic, right? I see some people who have a great vision, but it doesn't match their reality. Like you're never going to actually implement it, right? But there's a million great ideas out there. I have a business, so people pitch me on their businesses, right? Like that happens. And <laughs> usually people have really good ideas. It's usually not the ideas where people fail. It's one of two things. Either they missize their idea, 
you know, it's too big or too small for what they can actually pull off. But most part, they just don't do it, right? So like at the end of the day, like most of it is just like sitting down, doing the work, not expecting results in a month, right? It's going to take longer and just grinding it out, man. In the beginning, it's just a grind. But almost everyone I know who's done that and done the work has figured it out. And really, the, the, the quality of the idea, I think, is barely matters because usually what I've seen happen is you start with an idea and then you slowly understand it better from doing the work. And then you realize, hey, this is actually what I should be doing. I know you guys have moved around in terms of what you've done also, right? You haven't always, hasn't always been the same business. But the more you do it, the more you learn. You just got to start and put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, you might not end up where you expected, but you'll, you'll end up with a real business. Thanks for dropping by the show. We appreciate your time. All right. Thanks. I really, this was really fun for me. Shout out to uh, Aaron Rubin, incredibly humble relative to the amount of success he's created and achieved. What an incredibly hardworking guy, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Check him out over at shiphero.com. And we would love to hear from any of you out there who are e-commerce sellers. What are your pain points? Do you have any ideas for services in the space or, or thoughts about where e-commerce is headed in the next few years? Drop us an email or voicemail. My email is at dan at tropicalmba.com. Certainly, the e-commerce space has been utterly fascinating. There's extraordinary opportunities there in the coming years. Aaron just being one example of someone who's taken advantage of that. So well done, Aaron. That's it for this week. Just want to give one quick shout out to this week's sponsor, serviceproviderpro.co. We appreciate their support. That's it for now. We'll be back next Thursday as always. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.